The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, Hey, Bowden, good job doing announcements, buddy. First time up on stage with a mic for a college intern. I mean, that's a nerve-wracking experience. You guys are intimidating. You too, for sure. Um, It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name's Chris. If I didn't get a chance to meet you on your way in, I'm the lead pastor here. Happy Memorial Day. We're so thankful that you're spending part of your day with us. Um, But we have a lot of work to do. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you grab it and open it up to Matthew chapter 17? Uh, Matthew 17 is where we are going to be this morning. Uh, Matthew 17, uh, you can find that on a phone or a tablet. There are also hardback black Bibles under every chair. Uh, You can use one of those. Matthew 17 can be found on page 822. uh, Matthew 17. Uh, We are in our summer sermon series here at Fathom in the Gospel of Matthew. uh, and, and, And I feel like I need to catch you up on where we're at in the gospel because what happened at the end of last summer when we were in Matthew affects what we're going to see today. So in Matthew chapter 16, uh, it's a famous chapter of the scriptures, uh, but, but Jesus' identity as the Son of God is beginning to solidify. Okay, in chapter 16, uh, really his disciples don't even really know who this guy is. They're not quite sure, is this a prophet? Is he a teacher? Like, why, why are we following this guy? And in, and in Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to actually have you look at it. So, it. so you can actually, I don't know if it's a page back or whatever, but Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. Look at these real quick with me. Uh, this is what the text says. Now, when Jesus came uh, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist." Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, they're not sure. This is what people are saying. They're not quite sure who this guy is. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, uh, so, so, so in this little passage, this is a famous passage, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who, who do people say that I am? And his disciples give some rather unconvincing answers. Yeah, maybe a prophet or like Elijah, maybe John the Baptist. They just kind of run through a list. But then Jesus says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Which, by the way, is the most important question that each one of us is going to have to answer. Who is Jesus? Who do we say Jesus is? And so after asking that question, Peter speaks up, of course, right? Which is classic Peter. It's classic Peter. Peter doesn't need to think about stuff. He just starts talking. That's what we'll see. And this is what Peter does. And Peter, his answer is magnificent, by the way. Peter is the first human being. Now, the demons had this thing right from the get-go. So uh, he's the first human being who openly confesses and identifies who Jesus is correctly. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. First time. First time that's ever been announced publicly. But then things get a little rocky for our boy, Rocky. Okay, look at verse 21, 16 verse 21. That's a joke, Bible joke. Verse 21, from that time, 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So, so as soon as Jesus starts to reveal the how, okay? Peter just correctly identified the who, but now Jesus reveals the how, how he was going to actually be the, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. How? By suffering and dying. And at that point, Peter pulls him aside, like grabs a hold of his arm, which is never a good idea to pull Jesus aside. Jesus, get over here, right? You're making a scene, right? Like that's, I, I mean, I, I can imagine this. You can't say this kind of stuff. Peter rebukes the incarnate son of God. And it's going to come full circle. Look at verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, okay, same day. This is all happening on the same day. It's a good day when you correctly identify who Jesus is. It's a bad day when he then responds by calling you the devil. Good day, bad day. I don't know if what P Peter's journal was at that point, but it was a mixed day for this guy. And then last week in, in our text at the very end of, of chapter 16, uh, the text we saw that uh, if we, we really want to follow Jesus, it's not just the who or the how, it's, it's if we want to follow Jesus, we're going to actually be required to do the very same thing that he did. You have to suffer and die. We are called to live the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice. And I tell you all of that introduction information to get us to chapter 17, verse one, all right? All of that sets up our text for today because the event of 17 is one of the most amazing events in the entire gospel narrative. And it's called the Mount of Transfiguration the Mount of Transfiguration. So I'm calling today's sermon, the God of the mountain, the God of the mountain. So let's pick it up in chapter 17, starting in verse one. And after six days, now that timestamp's important. Six days have occurred since Peter's good, bad day. Six days later, not even a full week. This is what happens. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So this is six days later, y'all, six days. Up on a mountain, Jesus picks three of his 12 disciples and they head on up the, the hill. Now, now, the first question that comes to mind is why these three? You ever wonder this? Why, why these three guys? They get to do all the cool stuff. Why are these three, Peter, James, and John? Here's what most commentators think. Most commentators agree that these three guys are Jesus' favorite. I didn't know Jesus was allowed to have favorites, but apparently he does have favorites because he's the son of God. He can do whatever he wants, okay? So God has favorites. That's, you can write that one down, okay? Are you his favorite or not? I don't know. But these three guys obviously are. Maybe it's because they were his first disciples, Perhaps, okay, I remember, remember these three guys were fishermen. 
They were the first three disciples called by Jesus. Jesus shows up. He tells them, drop your nets and follow me. And they did it. They gave up their careers, their families, their livelihoods. They they gave it all up and they started following this obscure Jewish rabbi. So maybe they are his favorites. Maybe they're his favorites. I don't know. But as I'm thinking about it this week, I'm not sure I agree with that. Hear me. I was a youth pastor for 10 years. Okay, before I planted this church, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And I think Jesus picks Peter, James, and John because these are the guys he can't trust alone back at camp. (laughs) That's why I think he picks them, okay? When I was a youth pastor, this would happen often. I would be on a trip and it'd be like, all right, I got to go out for supplies, You and you and you, you're coming with me, right? Because they're the ones who are like, he's gone, get the fireworks out, right? Like that's, and so that's what I'm thinking is going on here. I'm serious. Think about these guys' rap sheets. uh, Peter, Peter just got called Satan. (laughs) Not great start, okay, for trustworthiness. Uh, He will chop a dude's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane, which that's either incredibly good aim or bad aim, Right? That's Peter. Peter, he will deny that he even knew Jesus three times. So this guy isn't exactly best and brightest material. Okay? And then James and John, these two guys are brothers. They're known as the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. But the sons of thunder are always messing up. Always messing up. Okay? They're always debating on who the greatest disciple is going to be. Like, it's certainly not you. It's me, right? They, they, at one point, they ask their mom to go make a request of Jesus. Like, hey, can one of my sons sit at your right and your left? And Jesus is like, I mean, like a soccer mom. Like, why isn't my kid getting more playing time? Because they stink, right? Like, that's why they're not on the, like that. But that's, and then they, they're even one moment where, where, where James and John, they, there's some guys who are kind of wrestling with Jesus and not really on team. And they're like, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? As if they could, but come on, talk about missing the point of Jesus' ministry, like roasting people Old Testament style is not how he rolls. So so these two guys are, these three guys are who he brings up the mountain because I don't think they're worth leaving down by themselves. The whole place would be burned down. The other nine would be dead if, if those three were left down there. That's my thought. I think it's textually supported, okay? I think though that he brings these three guys really because they are, some of the bigger screw-ups in the bunch. And I think that might be good news for some of us in here today. It might, I mean, it's good news for me, y'all, but there should be some good news that Jesus doesn't choose the best and the brightest, but he picks who he will to do what he will, where he will. So maybe tuck that one away. Verse two. And Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, stop right there. Uh, Transfigured. Nobody really knows what this word means completely. Like nobody really understands what that fully means. The Greek word that is is, uh, translated uh, transfigured is the word metamorpho, metamorpho, uh, which literally means to transform, or to change, or to transfigure. That's what that word means. It's where we get our word metamorphosis, like a butterfly coming out of a chrysalis, a cocoon, that idea. 
And uh, it, connote, uh, it connotes the idea of not just an external change, but one from the inside, a change from the inside that, that changes the whole person. That's what metamorpho means. And so what Matthew is saying is that at this moment on the mountain with these three guys watching on Jesus, who Jesus is on the inside is transfigured outside. It's, it's like put on display. So the question we have to ask is, who was Jesus on the inside? Who was he internally? Well, if you remember Colossians 1.19, I'll put this up on the screen. This is what we find Paul saying about Jesus. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in this moment, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God bursting forth like in a supernatural way from Jesus. It's a wild text. So nothing like this in the New Testament besides this one event. I mean, think about this. I mean, it's, it's wild. And, and, and some will say that this is a miracle, that Jesus' transfiguration is a miracle of God, but actually it's not a miracle. I need you to know this. This is not a miracle. No, the real miracle, the real miracle is that for 33 years, all the fullness of God was contained and shrouded in a man named Jesus of Nazareth. The real miracle is that this isn't spewing forth always. It's like actually in this moment, in this moment of transfiguration, it's like Jesus is pressing pause on the miracle that was his entire earthly life to just show off for a brief moment who he really is on the inside. He is actually what Peter said he was in chapter 16. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And hear me, the gospel writers don't even know how to describe this thing. This is why it gets wild. So look again at verse two. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. If you read Luke's account in Luke's gospel of this, it says that his face was altered and his clothing became like lightning. If you read Mark's account of it, uh, it says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. That was Mark's take. And I just wondered about that this week. I wonder if they're just talking about these things up in heaven. They ever just like up in heaven, the three disciples are up there talking about what they talk. Hey, y'all remember the transfiguration? Remember that? Hey, how'd you, how'd you put that in your book? And Matthew's like, oh man, I was just trying to think like of the brightest thing in the world. Like the brightest. So I said it was like the sun, like the sun is just shooting out of Jesus' face. That's what I pictured. And Luke's like, yeah, man, totally. I was, I was thinking, you know, at night, like at nighttime when you're outside and the, there may be clouds covered and so you can't see stars or whatever and your eyes start to get accustomed to the darkness and then all of a sudden, like a bolt of lightning flashes. 
That's how it was. And you're like blinded by it. Like that's how I saw it. Then what did you, what'd you put Mark? Mark is like, uh, I was just thinking like when mom used to wash my sheets, like when, like when mom did a load of whites and used bleach, like the good bleach, not like the knockoff bleach, but like Clorox. That's what I was thinking. That's what I, yeah. Yeah, come to think of it, I wish I had that one back. I wish I had that one back. That's the scene. The guys don't even know how to describe what's going on here. Peter, James, and John are witnesses to the transfiguration of Jesus shining like the sun, like lightning coming out of him, like, like Clorox all over him. That's... So what these guys are writing, it's in the Bible. Verse three. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, when, when I read this verse, like what I just did, when I read this verse, uh, 21st century Western Christians, uh, y- your reaction uh, is, exact, is not exactly what it would have been uh, if I had read that to, you know, six years later to some, some Jews back in these days. Like if I had read that, like you hear this and you stare at me blankly, which is what you do most of the time, so I'm kind of used to it, okay? Uh, but, but, but that's like when I read that, when we read that, we're just like, okay, cool, Moses and Elijah, but hear me, uh, this does not quite, uh, quite pack as much of a punch as it would have in their day. Moses and Elijah, upon seeing them, these guys would have been like Buddy the Elf. Like, I know him, right? That's what they would have been freaking out. These three Jewish men had grown up their entire lives idolizing these two. Like if there were action figures in ancient Israel, Moses and Elijah would be the two most popular ones, Okay. Maybe Jeremiah in a hole, like by himself, but like the rest of them, it's just those two. Okay, Moses, hear me. Moses was the writer of the Torah. The, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, he was the writer of God's law. And Elijah is Israel's premier and greatest prophet. So now you've got like lightning Jesus standing there with Mo and E, and, and these guys wouldn't know what to do about it. The law and the prophets These two guys represent the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets are standing with the Christ, the son of the living God. It's impressive. And I don't know how it worked, okay? Like I can't think about it a little bit, but but like all of a sudden they're standing there and out of the ground, like this old dude shows up with like a beard and a staff and tablets. They're like, oh man, Moses, second dude, right out of the ground. Another old guy has a beard, has a staff, like a name tag that says Elijah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you know who it was him, but, but, but there they are. The law and the prophets and the son of God, the one who the law and the prophets point to all together. Moses and Elijah are bearing witness to the son of God. He's like lightning transfigured. I mean, this is a huge moment, huge. I can't, we can't, we can't get our heads around how big of a moment this is. And then verse four. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Okay. 
Now, I have to be careful. I have to be careful right now because one day I will likely meet Peter, okay? Uh, and I don't want him to like secret, like punch me in the neck, ninja chop me or something like that. I'm not sure if you're allowed to punch people in heaven, but if he is, he might come after me just for these things. But, but here's the question. You ever say something dumb? You ever say something dumb? You feel okay admitting that in church? I know, you know, it's church. Don't admit things. But like, it's, it's, this is a dumb thing. You ever just open your mouth and out of it rolls something that's totally inappropriate or totally ridiculous or just kind of dumb. It just comes out of your mouth. And at that moment, when you say something dumb, you have two options. There's only two, two options. One, you can admit, yep, do over, right? That was dumb. I should not have said that, right? You can just admit it right there. Or you can keep talking, which always works out, right? It's always going well after that. And our boy Peter is about to do that very thing. That's, he just said something dumb. Here is verbatim what one biblical commentator, PhD in Bible, this is what he says about this. Peter begins on a rather clumsy note as good fits more a nice stroll in the park than a theophany. Which is like, even the Bible geeks are agreeing, bro, you shouldn't be talking. Like, what are you saying? What are you saying? So, so he said something dumb. He said something dumb and he's about to keep talking, okay? Jesus, it's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, and at this point, even the Bible, not in this passage, but even the Bible has to cover for him. So if you were to read Luke's account, I'll put this up on the screen. Luke's account says this, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. The Bible is even like, hey, just give the guy a break. He had no idea what he was talking about. That's what the Bible says. And, and, and imagine the scene with me. The transfigured Jesus, the giver of the law, the greatest of prophets, and Peter. Peter's like, it's really good to be here. That's his, that's his statement. He's really good to be here. James and John have to just be like, oh, Lord, not now, not now, not this guy. Why'd you make him the rock, really? Just And I imagine Moses and Elijah are just caught up in it, and all of a sudden Peter speaks up, and they're like, there's some fishermen up here? Like, what's happening? And I just, I mean, Peter's like, you guys want tents? I'll make some tents. Like, I can make three tents. And it's, it's a little wild here. It's a little wild. But while Peter, the Bible tells us that Peter has no idea what he's talking about. The Bible tells us that he has no idea what he was saying. I do actually think he's coming from a place of pure motives here. Now, let me explain. The Greek word for tents is actually the word translated tabernacles. So some of your, some of your uh, depending on your version, it might even say uh, that he offered to make three tabernacles. And the tabernacle was the place in the Old Testament that allowed God's presence to reside and stay with God's people. That's what the tabernacle's purpose was, so that God could stay with his people. So my thought is, Peter just doesn't want this moment to end. That's what I think is going on here. I don't think he wants this to end. So he's like, let me build a tabernacle for you. Stay with us. 
I don't want this. I'll, I'll build you a tent. You just stay, Jesus. This is also, this moment is where we get the idea of a mountaintop experience up on the mountain with the transfigured Jesus. And hear me, y'all, I've been in similar places. Like I've not seen lightning Jesus, okay, just so you know, but, but there are these moments that we experience and those moments matter. I don't want to downplay that just because Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. Moments matter. Like, I don't know about you, but I've had moments I mean, I've had moments during like a worship service or at youth camp or on a missions trip or even like listening to a sermon where I just feel like I get caught up in the moment and I don't want it to end. I don't want it to stop. Y'all, I've been in this room, in this room. And, and listen, uh, you, first, you better be real thankful for Amanda and our worship team here at Fathom because for a small church to have worship that good is a rarity, okay? Okay. They lead us very well. But there are times where I'm standing in the back of the room with my hands up and my eyes closed and I just get caught up in it. And hear me, I don't want it to end. I'm like, get me a tent because I'll stay here. And then listen, I know um, that I'm the preacher that you listen to, but, but I have guys that I listen to. I have guys who are my preachers. And I'm telling you, that I've listened to some of their sermons, some of them long sermons, like longer than my sermons, which is almost an impossibility, all right? But like long sermons, and they're so good, I just can't get enough. Like I don't want them to end. That's how good they are. And I've been on retreats, and I've been on trips, and man, I felt so close to God. I don't know if you've ever been on like a retreat or a, or a youth tr trip or like a mission trip and you get to this place where you feel like you're so close to Jesus that you could just turn the corner and he'd be there. Like you get to this place where you're like, I'm just, it's good for me to be here. Like, this is good. It's good. Can we just stay? I just want to build a tent. I don't ever want to leave. I don't want to go back down. See, while Peter doesn't know what he's talking about, I think his response resonates with us. It resonates with me because, man, I don't want those moments to end. But then hear me. Life with Christ isn't lived up on the mountain. We get those moments and they matter. But life following Jesus is not lived on the mountain. Look at verse 5. Peter was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So listen, I just want to point out that Peter was still speaking. Peter was still speaking and the God of the universe had to interrupt him. That's what the text says, okay? Uh, he, but it just points out, it just points out the voice of God, the audible voice, the cloud of God points out where Peter was wrong, where Peter was wrong. Jesus is not simply one of three tents or three tabernacles that should be erected. He's not on par with Moses and Elijah. It's not like law, prophets, Christ, three iterations. That's not what's happening here. What God is saying is, Listen to my son. 
He's the one that the other two tents bore witness to. He is not just one more person pointing you to God. He is not just one more prophet of God. He himself is God. He is to be listened to. That word in Greek is is pretty firm. It's like, listen to me. It's like what you tell your kids. Listen to me. It's almost like obey what I'm saying. Listen to him. Verse six. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So the reason, the reason that these guys are terrified is because they knew the book of Exodus. The reason that these three Jewish men are terrified upon, not, not lightning Jesus, not Mo and E just showing up, that doesn't scare them. The cloud and the voice of God And they're terrified and they fall on their faces. The reason is that in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, God always shows up in the form of a cloud. In the form of a cloud by day and that cloud at night when the sun had gone down, it looked like the cloud was a pillar of fire. It was alive with light. Maybe transfigured is the right word. And that cloud is called the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord. And it was where God's presence lived. God's presence among his people was consumed in this cloud during day and this fire at night. That's how God manifested himself to his people. And in Exodus chapter 33, Moses, who is as tight with God as anyone, Moses in Exodus 33 says to God, please show me your glory. Like, let me see, let me see what's in that cloud. You remember God's response? You can't. You can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. And this is why the original tabernacle existed. This is why the tent even existed, to house the cloud, to house the glory of God with the curtain separating the glory from everyone else lest they die. The tent was, hear me, not a home for God. It was a protection for God's people from the glory and the majesty therein of Yahweh. Now, here are these three guys up on a mountain, just like Sinai. And and Jesus is glorious, like the sun, like lightning. And Moses is there. Moses, again, up on the mountain. The mosaic themes are huge in this. And Peter says, let me build a tabernacle. Let me build a tent. And then the cloud envelops them, and a voice from heaven starts to talk, but there's no tent to protect them. There's no protection for them. And these guys are terrified because they think they're going to die. They know what happens when the cloud shows up. And so they fall on their faces. This isn't, it's good that we're here. This is, we shouldn't be here. We can't be here. We can't see this. And they think they're going to die. Verse seven. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. 
And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They don't die. Which is good news because they go on to do some things that are important, but, but they don't die. Why not? There's no tent. They're in the cloud. Jesus is shining like the sun. They're seeing his face. Why aren't they dead? It's because you don't need a tent to protect you from him anymore. You don't need a tent to protect you from God's glory any longer. They saw God's glory, not a diminished version, his full sunshine, lightning, Clorox bleached version, and they lived. In fact, this is why in John chapter one, we find these words, I'll put them up. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that's an incredible verse. We could pick that one apart, okay? But the word that is translated in the ESV, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, hear me, is the exact same word in verb form that Peter used when he said, I want to make three tents. Same word. Tent is the noun. Dwelt is the verb. And so you may have heard this before, but the word became flesh and tabernacled among us would be a correct translation. The word became flesh and tented among us. See, the reason they don't need a tabernacle is because Jesus is the tent now. Jesus is the tent containing God's glory. And so Jesus touches them and they see him and he tells them, don't be afraid. You've seen it and you're still alive. And the text says they look to him and he's there by himself. Back to normal Jesus. Transfiguration is over. Transfiguration is over. Now, verse nine. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. See, Jesus says, don't tell people about this. <laughs> don't tell anybody about this. It's part of what's known as the messianic secret. Now, the question is why? Like at this, this is actually the last moment of messianic secret because the jig's up. Peter has already confessed who this guy is. Everybody knows, oh, this is the son of God. Oh, this is the Messiah. So why continue this little bit of secret? Why tell these three guys, don't tell anybody about this until the son of man is raised from the dead? Why say this? Well, first, until he rose from the dead, ain't no one believing you about this. They can't even describe it in words for us. We've read this before and we don't understand it. So, so I think he's just cutting him a little slack. Like you don't want to look crazy yet, okay? That'll come in time. Once you have the Holy Spirit, be as crazy as you want, okay? But until then, just mm, keep it on the DL, okay? But there's another piece that, that kind of stuck out to me this week. Why not let these guys talk about this? 
I think it's because Peter, James, and John aren't ready yet. I, I, I think it's them who aren't ready to talk about it, let alone anybody else ready to hear it. Now, think about this with me for a minute. It was only six days ago, less than a week, six days ago, not even a full week from when Peter first confessed, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. But then when Jesus starts talking about suffering, the moment Jesus switches from, I'm the Christ, I'm the son of the living God to, to I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die, Peter can't handle that. He can't handle that. Six days. Now they're up on the mountain and when the glory of Christ is put on full display, his response is, I don't ever wanna leave here. I don't ever want to leave. Let's stay. Let's build tents. And so hear me, Peter, I think, is at a place where he loves the God of the mountain. He's all in on Jesus, transfigured Jesus, the son of the living God. He's into that. But hear me, I think Jesus knows that Peter has not yet reckoned with the God of the valley. See, when he saw the transfigured Jesus, he must have thought, yeah, this is good. This is the moment. This is, this is how it's supposed to be. Jesus, you can forget all that stuff about suffering. You don't need to, man. You don't need to go and die. Let's just live here. Let's just live here. Everything you said six days ago about denying ourselves and picking up our cross and laying down our lives. No, 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 no. This is what I want. I want the mountain. This is what I want. He loved the God of the mountain. And we do too. I do too. But just hear me. You cannot have Christ's divinity without his humanity. You cannot have the resurrection without the crucifixion. You cannot have life without death. You, you can't have victory without suffering. You can't have the mountain without the valley. This is not how it works. And I wonder if for some of us, this might be why we feel like our Christian life isn't working. Like, we want to save our lives, not lose them. We want to find ourselves, not deny ourselves. Right? We want to be victorious. We want the victory right now, not, not a cross to bear. We want the transfiguration, but Jesus goes down the valley to the crucifixion. And you can't have one without the other. And I think because of that, we're afraid at times to surrender. We're afraid to surrender. We're afraid to really give everything to this suffering Christ because then what if it happens to us? What if it goes badly for, for me, for the ones that I love? What if it's not just all up and to the right? What if it's down? What if it leads me to a real cross, a real grave? 
But I want you to hear this, church. Jesus will never be part of your life, but he will gladly take all of your life. You might think that you've given him part of it, but you haven't. He will never be part, but he'll always take all. Now hear me, I, I get Peter on this one. <laughs> I feel like I understand this guy this week more than I've understood him in a lot of other weeks because I love the mountain. Y'all, we all love mountains. That's why we live here, right? I love the mountaintop. And listen, I became a Christian in high school, 16 years old. And since then, I've had a bunch of mountaintop experiences. Tons of them. I'm mountaintop at Young Life Camp. They like designate that as a place where the Shekinah glory could house if it needs to. Like I've been there. Mountaintops as a worship leader, leading congregations, singing out loud, lifting their hands to Jesus. Man, there's nothing that feels better for this team than when we respond. Man, I've had mountaintops in church and mountaintops with friends and mountaintops with family. College, man, I come up to college, I go to Bible classes and theology classes and ministry classes, take seminary. Man, it all feels like the summit to me. I'm hungry for it. Give me more of it. I want it. Right out of college. Like, I mean, I'm 21 and they give me a full-time job in a church being a youth pastor. Full-time. It's a mountain. I didn't have to work at Starbucks. A mountain, Right? Then I planted this church and it's like mountaintops, mountaintops, mountaintops. I want it. I love them. And I never would have articulated it quite like this in any of those moments. But often I feel like I just need Jesus to be a part of my life. Like I just need him to be a part. I've got this. Hey guys, I'm good at being a Christian. I've got this, Jesus. I'll build you a tent and we can just stay here up on the mountain. It's good that we're here. Let me just confess, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God, but I'm good. I've got this. You just stay in your tent. But he'll never be part of your life. He will take all of it, but he will never be part. And so after 20 years of following Jesus, I've learned very lovingly that Jesus often brings me down from the mountain. He brings me down from the mountain. And in those moments, it's like at the valley, he comes and he touches me. It's like he touches me and he says, don't be afraid. We've talked about this, the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Don't be afraid. And he like walks me down into the valley or sometimes I literally tumble and fall head over first down the mountain. You ever done that? And find myself in the place where I love the God of the mountain, but I'm down here in the valley and I have to deal with him. And it's in those seasons that God teaches me or like reteaches me or, or deepens me or I'm not sure exactly how to even put it into words, but, but I learn that he wants all of me, not just my wins, but my losses, not just my strengths, 
but my failures, my weaknesses. He doesn't just want Chris on the mountain. He wants my valley lows. This is the God of the mountain, church. The God of the mountain, this is what we sing, is the God of the valley. And we're gonna see that more next week. Next week's sermon will be called the God of the valley. It'll be real chipper. We'll feel real good about ourselves next week. But that's what I, I wanna take from the transfiguration this morning, church. The true miracle isn't the sun bursting out of Jesus' face, the lightning coming out of his body, the Hanes white t-shirt that he's got going on. That's not the miracle. The miracle is that he does all of that and then he goes down the mountain clothed again in the true miracle of his humanity and he walks to the cross. He goes to be humiliated and to suffer and to die. That radiant Jesus will hang on a cross and be forsaken by his father. His great victory over sin and death takes place not on the mountain, but in a trash heap. And I just wonder, for you, if you've ever trusted him with those things. God, it's so easy to love him on the mountain. It's, it's so good to love him when it's up and to the right. It's so good when we're singing and we're praising, we're lifting our hands, people getting healed, people getting saved, baptisms. I love him on the mountains. Have you worked with him in the valleys? Jesus will never be a part of your life. He'll gladly take all of your life. So have you given him all? Have you surrendered all? Like, listen, this is a church where you can come with your highs and your lows. You have to put on a face for me in the hallway. How you doing? Fine. How you doing? Blessed. I'd love for you to just say, how you doing? Crappy. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that. Elder check. I'm okay. Thumbs up. Good. Okay. This is a church where you can come with your successes and failures. This is a church where you can come with your strengths and your weaknesses. We need all of you here. We need all of your life here. Jesus needs all of you. He won't take part. He wants all. You don't have to put on a mountaintop face here. This is a, we say this all the time. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay. That's true for you. And listen, it has to be true for me or I'll never be a, a good leader for this church. It has to be true for each and every one of us as sheep under the great shepherd. It's okay to not be okay. This is not okay for us to stay there. We long for the mountaintops. We pray for the mountaintops. We look forward to the mountaintops, but much of life is lived in the valley. And it's there where he'll touch you. Pick you up. Lift your face. Say, don't be afraid. Have no fear. Listen to me. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a good and great gift this, this passage of scripture is. The transfiguration, the 
the moment in the New Testament where you put your glory on display, and yet it's not the most important moment. We see you on the mountain and we think, God, that's what we want. That's where we want to be. That's where I want to live. I want to be up there. I want to build a tent. I don't want to get out of here. And yet you call us down the mountain where fear is real, where failure is real, where sin is real. And you say, I go with you. My rod, my staff, they will comfort you. And so, Lord, I, I don't know where each one is this morning, but I do know that even on my heart this week, there's some areas that I need to surrender. You've been doing work on me in this, Father, from the mountain to the valley, and I pray for my friends. Holy Spirit, you've been preaching this whole time. You're the true preacher of our church. And so I ask, Father, preach to our hearts right now. Show us where we're out of alignment. Show us where we're not surrendered. Show us where we need to be taught or retaught or deepened or whatever it is about bearing our cross, about losing our life, about following the glorious Jesus who became the suffering servant. So I don't know what this means for each one, Lord, but I pray that you do your good work. And I pray these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.